Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be talking about JSTOR. What is that? <laughs> you are not a history major. Yeah, obviously. It's fair. <laughs> if our audience didn't know, pretty obvious now. <laughs> JSTOR. Okay. We're going to talk about women in reconstruction. Like surgery? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 35, J-Store and Women in Reconstruction. Not surgery. <laughs> this isn't the plastic surgery episode? No. Oh, we could do that. That'd be fun. Um, okay. So I want to start the episode because we always start by talking about one of the barriers to getting women into history class. Yeah. And as you know, we recently applied for a grant. Yes. And we were rejected for said grant. Yeah, we're not, um, you know, we're not bitter. We're not bitter. We're, no. com- we're coming for you next time. No. <laughs> No, it's all good, but um, one of the reasons that we were rejected for the grant was because the scholars that were on the committee felt like the idea that women's history isn't available to people um, just wasn't accurate because there's all this great scholarship out there that women's historians have been writing. That's so cute. (laughs) I mean, so, and it's true. There is a lot of scholarship out there that yeah. women historians okay. have been writing. So that's not a lie. Um, well, no. Problem, no one said it was a lie. The problem is getting it into the hands of students. Right. So, and we've been talking about that in lots of our episodes. Um, but mm-hmm. I'll just use myself as an example. My high school history teacher was, I want to say, in his 60s when, uh, that's same, a guesstimate. same. So when he taught me, and so when, so he, unless he was paying attention to present scholarship, which, fun fact, there is zero pressure on K-12 to educators to do that. Yeah. Um, and we already have talked about how social studies teachers are the least likely to get professional development. So put that into context. So he is teaching me as the scholarship is coming out, right? Like, so like he went to school in the 60s and 70s as these first women are really cranking out and transforming women's the field of women's history. So he missed that in his own education. Yep. Settled into a great career as a public educator and when he was teaching me in the 90s and early 2000s it, he's not teaching me any of that. Yeah. Because he didn't <laughs> learn it. And so So there's like the cycle part of the problem. Yeah. And then while there is, you know, and we've already talked about my own education in in college and the fact that I've never taken a women's history course. And so same, so I'm part of that same cycle, right? Like unless I'm reaching out and finding the articles and doing the study, it was never taught to me. So then this next step, of course, is me doing the research But if you're a a true, you know, scholar, like when I wrote papers in college on on topics that I now teach, I didn't like Google it. 
right? I was reading like scholarly works from databases in school and reading books on, and novels on mm-hmm. history. And, you know, a history major is reading like upwards of 50 pages a night, you know, for their... Oh, and you're not doing it for fun. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing it to get it done for schoolwork. You know, I think about that as an English major myself, you know, I was getting into books and literature that I probably would have thoroughly enjoyed had I had the time, space, and energy to do that. Yeah. You know, like I read Pride and Prejudice three times. Yeah. In two semesters. And it was kind of like, can we pick something else? Yeah. (laughs) And I adore that book. But when you're living in it, discussing it, I mean, you just get over it at a certain point. And I think it's the same probably for a lot of other people in different, Yeah, you know, you get a lot of same, same, same in your education sometimes and not always well challenged. Right. So in scholarship, there's sort of this like trickle down effect, right? A, you know, PhD candidate will write their dissertation on something and other people will sort of pick that up and make more complicated articles about that. And marinate it. Yeah. And then sort of integrate it into, you know, other themes and topics within history and for, you know, JSTOR is just a database for the social sciences that I would say is, like, oh. far superior to other databases for social sciences. Okay. Is it, like, jstore.edu.org? It's just jstore.org. Like, and okay. I don't know what <laughs> JSTOR stands for, but it's all, like, an acronym for something. My husband's name is Jeff, and his nickname in college was JSTOR. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> All right. Um, but anyway, so so this is like the database to turn to. And I would like to tell all the history professors that are listening right now, and we know that there are many of you. Yeah, shout out. High school educators do not have access to JSTOR. It is a paid service. What? It is a paid service. I work at one of the wealthiest school districts in the state of New Hampshire because we are on Lake Winnipesaukee and we tax all the Massachusetts people for their lake money and we put it into our schools. And we do not have access to JSTOR. So if in one of the wealthiest schools, in one of the best states for public education, I do not have access to JSTOR. Yep. Nobody has access to JSTOR. <laughs> Here's where the book ends. This is the, that's the end of that. So how do I get access to JSTOR as a public educator? How do I do it? And, and, I, and JSTOR is where you can find the really rich, integrated articles on stuff. So how do I get access to JSTOR? I Google something. It says, here's the article on JSTOR. It's perfect for you. And I go, oh, (laughs) yay, I'm so excited. And they're like, pay $26 to get this ding-ding article. I'm a public educator. I don't have $26 for one article. And, like, I get their business. They got to make money, too. Right, and scholars need to make money. Absolutely. And they should get paid for their work. So... Who pays for this so that educators get it in their hands? Right. So what I do is I reach out to the local university librarian who happens to be my friend, and I say, hey, can you <laughs> nerd, get me... Nerd alert. <laughs> Kelsey hangs out with the local librarian. Yeah. 
We presented together at a conference. Oh my god. Did you just push your glasses up your nose a little? A little bit. He goes, this is my friend. And I asked her to send me the PDF, you know, because she can access it through the, the university. So you're, che- you're cheating. I'm system. cheating the yeah. system. Yeah. You, you found a loophole in your research. Right. And I'm sorry, I'm trying to look up what the acronym stands for. There's no clues. There's no clues. On a history website. <laughs> <laughs> so JSTOR is great. EBSCOhost is great. Obviously, Google Scholar is great. But a lot of times, if you're researching, and, and you have to maybe just trust me on this, I research a lot, you bump up to the problem of they eventually tell you this article isn't available online. You need to have access to one of these databases. Okay. And so the idea that people are saying this this women's history is out there, it's, you know, like the fact that scholars are writing about it means that it's not really an area of need. It's like, no, like <laughs> scholars might be writing about it. But first of all, you have to have, as a teacher, you have to have the foresight and the the vision to say, hey, I wonder what women thought about X. Yeah. And then you have to... Google that, and then you have to realize that none of the scholarly articles are available to you, and then you have to somehow get access to those articles. I mean, articles. I'm already tired. You're making me tired. <laughs> That's, like, too much. Right, and it's like, and, and for a class that you probably already have a really great lesson on. Oh, yeah, right? and then you can just, like, knock it out and yeah. just, like, call it a day and go home and eat bread. Right. We get it. <laughs> yeah. So, like, why would you go through all that work just to add women in? And... So I, I, I hear it, but a lot of this scholarship that people think is out there is not trickle. The trickle-down effect isn't happening. And what happens is, like, people take these great scholarly articles and then, you know, the New York Times will sort of, like, fluff it up a little bit. Yeah, make and it like, a little prettier and then you can access some details. Right, and maybe Huffington Post will write something. You know, like, like people will write things about scholarship that's coming out, but even that is, like, the watered-down version of yeah, what... You're not getting the content you really want. Right, and a lot of times JSTOR are are like packed with primary source quotes and primary source materials yeah or they refer you to other stuff that you might want to look into or if you're teaching a higher level like high school history class you might have your kids like straight up read that article if you can get access to it yeah so well and it's like once you steal it once copy 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 right (laughs) (laughs) so then it's almost like the scholars are not getting accurate details of how often their pieces are being utilized right which doesn't help anybody right so, not having access to JSTOR, and I, I'm picking on JSTOR in particular. Well, they're but, a nonprofit, so they're doing their best. <laughs> but like ProQuest, which is a database of American of newspapers throughout history. Mm-hmm. Like, you want people to read primary sources in class? Cool. Give us access to ProQuest. We would love to do that. You know, I mean, the Library of Congress does have their free Chronicling America database, but I love that you know where all of these things. <laughs> <are>. <laughs> Can you just put like a Kelsey searches? Yes. <laughs> How to guide. Oh my god. If you can't find it here, find it here. If you can't find it here, find it here. Yeah. And then if all else fails, call Rhonda at the library. <laughs> <laughs> uh so anyway, yes, there is great scholarship out there. No, it is not being taught in public schools. <laughs> Period. Period. Thank you. And thank you to all the history professors who, despite that, are working really hard to get it there. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for the network and team of 
professors and scholars that we are building in our oh my gosh. community. It's like um, the nerd herd. No, it's the kidding. nerd herd. I know, but seriously, and no, they're all so literally passionate. the most badass group of people that are doing some incredible work in their field. Yeah. To get stories out there and to get it into the hands of their students, which is so impactful. Yeah, absolutely. And then to helpfully get it to trickle down to the lower grades where it's not being taught. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about reconstruction. Okay. Surgery? No. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, go to our website, www.remedialherstory.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Through Patreon, you can sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes information, gear, and bonus episodes. But more importantly, patrons are putting their money where their mouth is and making a financial commitment to getting women's history into the K-12 curriculum. We are so grateful to our patrons who sponsored this episode. Our history makers, Jeffrey. Our history heroes, Brooke and Barbara. Our historians, Jamie and Kent. And our allies, Nicole, Mark, Sarah, Leah, Thank you. You guys make this show possible. So, Brooke, let's start by defining reconstruction. Yeah, could you get me to the right place? Because I am in Beverly Hills right now. Okay. During the American Civil War, there was a great deal of bombing and destroying of cities and towns. Yes. And um, Sherman, for example, General Sherman, when he marched through the South, he literally ripped up railroads, built big-ass bonfires, melted rails around the fires, and twisted them around trees so that they could not be rebuilt again. Destroyed telegraph lines, just burned homes as he came through, burned cotton fields. Really aggressive. Super aggressive. And this should go... what side was he on? North. Whoa. Yeah, so he's trying to destroy... This is called... This is in war, this is called total war. And he's trying to basically destroy the South's ability to make war at all. So destroy the economy, destroy... destroy okay, yeah, take funds away. Take everything. And he's prom- he's an extreme example, but this should go to show that if you... That Southern cities are basically destroyed at the end, yeah. of, at the, end of the Civil War. So the period of Reconstruction is called, it's called Reconstruction. It's the period that immediately follows the Civil War, and it it literally means Um. rebuild as well as figuratively (laughs) rebuild. Okay, I'm with you now. Okay. So um, the idea of Reconstruction is you're bringing this really divided nation back Back. together. And there are... In this, in this period, there are a lot of really important questions that need to be resolved. And I would say they, that Reconstruction probably failed because these questions were not well answered by the leadership. And partly because the leadership was assassinated. 
Yeesh. Right? right? Okay. Lincoln yeah. is, is shot in Ford's theater just a few days after the end of the Civil War. Yeah. And so, and it was an attempt by John Wilkes Booth to restart the Civil War. You know, like, let's kick this into gear again. Yep. And, um, you know, thankfully his attempt failed, um, but it leaves the United States under the leadership of Andrew Johnson, who is way more more moderate than than yeah. Lincoln was and um and just really is it's a tricky time in American tricky time in American history and so some of the big questions are how do you bring these southern states back into the union like literally like how do you trust these people again right yeah do those do those politicians ever get to hold office again in the union do you know confederate soldiers and generals like are they allowed to serve in the union army yeah like um, how do you tell where someone's loyalties lie right um how like literally how do you rebuild these cities and who is responsible for doing that is it the North because it was their armies that destroyed yeah, like who, it? Who foots the bill? Right. Literally, I mean, literally, who pays for this stuff? Yeah. Who, who's rebuilding? Um, you know, sneakily, during the Civil War, the United States, the Union, um, passed the Transcontinental Railroad, like, bills to, to fund it. And so they funded it going through the North from New York to San Francisco rather than through the South, Charleston to yeah. L.A., and so a lot of the economic benefits that come from the Transcontinental Railroad are going to be going to the north. So in addition to having their economy destroyed, like all the growth is also happening because the South wasn't there to vote against some of right. these big bills. Um, so, you know, so physically, how, how do we rebuild? Who's responsible? How are we going to fix this financial state that the South is in? Lincoln waited to sign any peace agreements until the abolition of slavery had had been passed in in the united states that was one reason why people were very critical of him because there were opportunities to have peace and he you know lincoln said some maybe racist things but to his credit he did not waver on getting the job done and you know he had opportunities to accept peace with but with slavery and he turned those opportunities down and um and yeah because then what are you fighting for what was it all for right union yeah no (laughs) so um so this new nation that the South will be rejoining, you know, it's a, it's a, some people call it the new birth of freedom. Yep. Um, when the South rejoins that, there's no slavery in that. So, so what does that do to the to them? Economy? Yeah, and the lives they set up. Yep. With utilizing slavery. Yep. Um, what are we going to do with all of these freed human beings who, for their entire lives up to that point? They have been denied educations. They are literally not allowed to read. Um, and yeah. now we're saying, okay, like go off and get a profession and wage and whatever. But they don't have like they don't have the skill set for anything other than what they've been doing, right? Right. So then you know, they now need to go and figure out how to live that life, not being a slave, 
many buy farms of their own and try to stand those up and people are not happy about that. Yeah. Well, first they have to acquire, acquire funds. Yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll get to that bit soon. Um, but then also, you know, say you're a 60 year old enslaved person and you are being informed that you are emancipated. Cool. Thanks. Are you going to like pay me for the 60 years of labor yeah. that I just did? Like, where's my contribution? Where's, where's that? Where's that pay? And, and who's responsible for paying that? And, you know, there were lots of ideas that were floated in this area, in, in this era, like taking, you know, like if you've got 50 slaves working on a plantation, dividing up the land on that plantation among the 50 slaves, and now you're landowners. Congratulations right? Or, um, you know, or like taking all the assets and the funds from Confederate soldiers and distributing that amongst black people, right? Like there are so many things that could have been done Mm -hmm. and we're not done. And so what happens in this period is that, um, there is this sort of sharecropping system that, that, is developed and the Stanford history education group has a really great lesson plan on sharecropping that teachers can use. Um, there are actually lots of really great lesson plans on reconstruction that are out there that are primary source based that are inquiry based. I went through all of them that I have and none of them have any female primary sources. Failure. I know. I know that's (laughs) shocking to you. (laughs) Um, but the, there, there are a lot of really good ones and the sharecropping one in particular is, is, is good because they have an actual sharecropping contract in this lesson plan. And so you can really see what these types of agreements are. Um, but basically what a sharecropper is, is a former slave Mm -hmm. who now is working for their former master. Yep. And that they are paying their, their master, like they're getting paid basically in by, like by providing crop, like however much they produce, they give that to their master and then their master gives them stuff back. Mm -hmm. So they don't, there's not a lot of like assets, like the, the, they're still, they're doing what they've always done and now they may be getting a wage. And it's, it's just not a great system and it doesn't lead to skill development and all these other things. Yeah, so, an evolution of a person in that time. Yeah. So I got interested in women in this period in particular because most of the pictures of women from this time are white women from the North coming down to the South to educate formerly enslaved people. And the more I looked into the history of women in the Reconstruction period, I realized there's actually a lot more women that are worth getting into and a lot more like, I'm not not necessarily specific women, but like groups and types of women that are doing stuff. And it's the the women educators, the white northern women coming to the South to educate, you know, black people, um, what what was at the time freedmen and women, um, they, they are important. And that, if, if that's not being taught in schools, it absolutely should be taught because it is one of the ways that we solve these problems, right? What do we do with these 
formerly enslaved people who have never been educated, never taught to read and write. We need people to do that. Who knows how to read and write and has a lot of free time? Oh, rich white ladies, like send them <laughs> south, right? Um, who are like Christian and maybe former abolitionists right. and like care about this stuff. Um, so, so yes, they are important, but in most cases, schools could not afford to, to get these women to come down. Okay. There isn't a lot of funding for this. So, um, I want to pause knowing that that's sort of how I got interested in this. And I imagine most history teachers that are listening to this right now are like, oh yeah, I've heard of those, I've heard of those women that came South. Um, and and pause because there's actually a lot more to that story to, to to women's story during this time. So, I first want to start by telling the story from the perspective of Southern white women. What is that book you are holding? <laughs> this book is called Reconstruction: Binding the Wounds, and it's another um, part of the series on perspectives on history and it's just um it was edited by a woman and so of course okay. she includes women but it's a collection of <laughs> primary sources so novel it's a concept i mean adorable it's edited by cheryl edwards and thank you cheryl good job cheryl um and she uh, start she has a, a primary source in here mm -hmm. from Mrs. Frances Butler Lee's account and oh. so she wrote this in 1883 and she is she's a southern woman okay okay she said, the year after the war between the North and the South, I went to the South with my father to look after our property in Georgia and see what could be done with it. The whole country had, of course, undergone a complete revolution. The changes that a four years war must bring about in any country would have alone been enough to give a different aspect to everything. But at the South, beside the changes brought about by the war, our slaves had been freed, the white population was conquered, ruined, and disheartened, unable for the moment to see anything but ruin before as well as behind, too wedded to the fancied prosperities of the old system to believe in any possible success under the new. And even had the people desired to begin at once to rebuild their fortunes, it would have been, in most cases, impossible, for in many families the young men had perished in the war, and the old men, if not too old for the labor and effort it required to set the machinery of peace going again, were beggared and had not even money to buy food for themselves and their families, let alone their negroes, to whom they now had to pay wages as well as feed them. So she's sort of lamenting, like, yeah, oh, now seems like, like it. we're, you know, we're, <clears throat> we're in poverty now, and now we have to pay these people? Well, good golly. Um, she continues, I can hardly give a true idea of how crushed and sad the people are. You hear no bitterness towards the North. They are too sad to be bitter. Their grief is overwhelming. Nothing can make any difference to them now. The women live in the past and the men only in the daily present, trying in a listless sort of way to repair their ruined fortunes. They are like many foreigners whose only interest in the country is their own individual business. Politics are never mentioned and they know and care less about what is going on in Washington than in London. The fine houses have fallen to decay or been burnt down, the grounds neglected and the grown over with weeds, the plantations left with few exceptions to the Negroes. 
olives groves choked up with undergrowth, stately date palms ruthlessly burnt down by Negroes to make room for a small patch of corn, there were hun where there were hundreds untilled, close at hand, a few solitary men eking out an existence by growing fruit trees and cabbages, by planting small patches of cotton or corn, by hunting deer, or by selling whiskey to the Negroes. Her contempt for black people in there is pretty clear. Like, they ruthlessly yeah. burnt this down, or, oh, now we have to pay for them, you know, etc. Um, yeah. But it sort of gives you a picture, at least from a privileged yeah. white woman's perspective, on the deterioration of her, her life. And it's interesting, and I just think it's cr almost crazy that we don't teach reconstruction from a women's perspective, right? It's often like top down, whatever. But what's crazy about it is there were 620,000 Americans and mostly men, although we have in a previous episode talked about mm -hmm. women who sought, fought and served in the civil war, mostly men who died in the American civil war. Corona has passed every other in you know event in american history except the civil war yep so this is an unprecedented number of people who died and when you have that many men die it means that women back home are picking up the pieces and for the entire generation of men that have now been wiped out it means that women's lives are completely changing too yeah and so I want to read a, a little bit to you from America. It's actually like surprising we don't have more women um, at leading the narrative. Yes. Like what a perspective to have about the change in their partners, spouses, brothers, and, and husbands. Oh, yeah. I mean, not even like, like we're talking about people who've died, but you're also getting to like PTSD and like yeah. all these other things that, that are going to change. And so this book, America's Women, <laughs> 400 Years of Dolls, Drudges, and Helpmate, Helpmates and Heroines by Gail Collins. We've referenced it a number of times on this podcast. I mean, podcast. it's a Kelsey fave. It's a Kelsey fave. Definitely buy it. <laughs> um, she does not spend much time on reconstruction which is kind of sad so she gives it oh let's say five pages here interesting um so she says on page 204 nearly a quarter of the men of military age in the south were killed and perhaps another quarter returned home wounded to make up for the men f f um to make up to the men for what they had lost, southern girls were urged to do their part by marrying handicapped veterans. Quote, girls have married men they would never have given thought of had it not been thought a sacred duty, wrote a North Carolina woman whose daughter had just taken the plunge. Quote, you would never believe how our public speakers excite the crowd to this thing, end quote. The many men return with an empty sleeve or a ruined leg, ready to begin a new life. A good many others suffered from more complicated and destructive wounds. They were alcoholics or depressives or simply lost souls from the pre-war era, unable to make a post-war life for themselves. It was a crisis that the narrow pre-war life of wealthy Southern manhood had paved the way for. Sarah Morgan wrote that she intended to marry a man who had a profession because a rich man could lose his money. And, quote, a master 
is turned adrift in the tender mercies of the world without means to turn an honest penny, even if he had an inclination or energy, which most rich men did not. So he quietly settles down and goes to the dogs, not forgetting you, but insisting on your company for the first time in your married life, end quote. Uh, okay. <laughs> so there's a lot in here and she goes on to describe sort of this idea of the southern man and how southern manhood is really challenged by this war because they come back losers yeah. in the war and failed. And so women, you know, in the south were proud to send these soldiers off and then they come home these like ruined beings. And um so hard so hard and they talked about how sort of like the she refers to it as the mighty oak had been hit by lightning so sort of just like this this southern manhood had been just destroyed and um jefferson davis president of the confederacy um he you know, he pro she says he represented his entire generation when he emerged from a union prison, ill, depressed, and never again able to find a career that could support his family. His wife, Verena, not only struggled to keep the family together and educate the children, but also had to cope with the humiliation when Davis moved into an estate of a wealthy woman, um, wealthy and worshipful woman, while Verena was in England recovering from a heart ailment. So he, like, betrays her and moves in with this wealthy widow, which is just pretty wild. And Yeah. Like, they eventually reconcile, but I just can't even imagine that sort of feeling. Also, reading this book was the first time that I heard her name, the wife of the president of the Confederacy. <laughs> So, you know, it's funny that in his lifetime, he wasn't able to like get a job again after the war and that he was sort of like pushed into like exile, exile almost. Um, because if you drive through Virginia today, there are so many things named after Jefferson Davis. My, oh my, my God, it's a little crazy. It's a little crazy. And that actually gets to another important thing. Um, Vox, which is an educational resource, you can find their videos on YouTube. They have a really great video about the Daughters of the Confederacy. Not the Daughters of the Revolution, which you are a part of. I am. Mm-hmm. The Daughters of the Confederacy emerge afterwards to try to preserve all of this rich history. Mm-hmm. And... So it's interesting because right now in American politics, there's a lot of conversations about what to do with these statues. Should we name, rename some of the, these bridges and roads? And yes, you should. Also, <laughs> I'm like, are we saying yes? Because yes. we're saying we, yeah. So I also, there's several, you know, being part of the DAR, there's several men that were part of the Northern Revolution that, were racist bigots. Mm -hmm. I I would also warrant to take their statues down and their highways and their memorial things. Why not honor people who are humanitarians? Yeah. It is interesting, though, because that video enlightened me from Vox, enlightened me that it was actually women, the daughters and wives of these men who died, um, that petitioned and fundraised to get all these statues put up 
and oh yeah i mean it's the same for the dar that's basically what what the organization does a lot but now it's much more about scholarship and empowering women but um yeah they were the ones that really wanted to set honor to the voices of the men that they lost yeah no surprise no surprise so talking about the south it's interesting to start with white women because it definitely legitimizes the argument that ending slavery would ruin the southern economy um (laughs) which but it would also (laughs) expand humanity and freedom (laughs) oh what a concept so is better There's also a great deal of space, often overlooked, because in Reconstruction, black men come in a great deal because they um, are able to, as a result of the 14th and 15th Amendment, run for office and hold office. And so a lot of black men are elected to office during this period immediately following the Civil War. And actually, we have our first black senator right away in that time period, which I think is really cool. Yeah. but of course, black women get overlooked in that in that story, and um, so the question of what are enslaved people, you know, what are enslaved women thinking? Um, so I want to to transition to talking about black women. I want to share one more story from a white Southern woman. Okay, but it it helps I think do it does a really good job of painting the picture of what it would have been like and um have have you are you familiar with Juneteenth yes yeah so I was like wait a minute (laughs) Juneteenth is I thought you were talking about a person named Juneteenth (laughs) I was like I don't know her yeah so it's a holiday often celebrated by African Americans but it should be celebrated by everyone, everyone um which is the celebration of when the last enslaved people in the United States were alerted that they were free. And this happened in Texas, which really the Civil War did not touch Texas. Yeah. And so, I mean, other than the fact that Texans fought in it. But right, most but it took the, forever to get the news to them. It took forever to get the news. So um, so the idea here, though, is, and and this gets to the idea of, like, you know, did Abraham Lincoln actually liberate the slaves? There's a great lesson plan from Stanford History Education Group asking that question. And I think there's a very, like, of course, he wrote this beautiful Emancipation Mm -hmm. Proclamation, and it did make a step towards freeing the slaves. But one of the problems is that he doesn't liberate slaves that are in the Union at the time. So the border states, Maryland, West Virginia, et cetera, they all have slaves, and he doesn't liberate those slaves. And then when he does liberate slaves that are in the Confederacy, like how are those enslaved people supposed to find out that they've been liberated? Yeah. Because no master in the Confederacy is going to say that to them. So it brings us to after the Civil War. Um, Bell Kearney recorded this account. Um, and this was a, an account of her, about her family coping. And she's a white woman in the South coping okay. with, you know, the end of the war. And she said, as soon as father was physically strong enough to perform the trying duty, he went to the Negro quarters on his impl- plantation, assembled his slaves and announced to them that they were free. There was no wild shout of joy 
or other demonstrations of gladness. The deepest gloom prevailed in their ranks, and an expression of mournful bewilderment settled upon their dusky faces. First of all, the condescension in her tone here is, is real. But if I were enslaved, I might find myself being puzzled yeah very perplexed and not really sure how to react because i don't want my master to think i'm excited yeah i'm like will they kill me now before i get to leave right like what's you know (laughs) what is the response so like there there are many reasons for their what she calls musky (laughs) response or whatever um she, she goes on, she says, They did not understand that strange, sweet word, freedom. Poor things. The English language had never brought to them the faintest definition of liberty, that most glorified gift of God. They were stunned. What were they to do? Where should they go? What would become of them? Who would feed and clothe them and care for them in sickness when they went out from the masters free? Noticing their consternation and dumb sorrow, father told them that they might stay and work for him as hired hands. Some of them did, but the majority drifted away and finally all. So, this is really interesting, seeing it a little bit from her perspective, but let's shift to learning about it from black women's perspective. Where are these beautiful women that are finally given freedom? Yeah. So... Gail Collins talks a little bit about this on 205. She says, After the war, the first thing freed slaves wanted to do was move around from job to job and from plantation to city. Um, Patience was an ex-slave in South Carolina. She passed up a profitable job cooking for her former owner. I must go, she said. If I stay here, I'll never know I'm free. Um, The black population of Atlanta was about 20% before the war, and it reached 46% by 1870. Most were women who got jobs as laundresses, frequently working in their own homes where they could stay and watch their children while making some money. By the 1880s, nearly 98% of black women in the workforce were domestics, but they and their employers had different expectations about how hard newly freed workers should have to labor and at what tasks. Black household workers quit their jobs frequently in what must have been a handy experience after slavery, right? Yeah. I can just quit. Cool, right? Bye. Bye. (laughs) Oh, you want to be a jerk to me? Okay, see ya. Yeah. (laughs) So you probably know that immediately following the Civil War, we see the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. It's so surprising. I know. And this is obviously a direct reaction to the, not, yes. not just the economic stuff, but now there's this huge social shift that is going on because people can just quit their jobs when they don't want to, yep. right? When they want, when they don't feel like they're being treated well. And, um, yeah. And like to give you context from the HR side, there is a lot of, um, laws that come into practice around human rights at that point. Yeah. Um, of... Some fair labor laws. Not many, but enough where you can start to make some decisions and lawyers are starting to think about how to help fair practices in the workforce. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Just for men, if anyone's curious. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So keep in mind some of the major things that have changed. First of all, black men... Well, first of all, all the 14th Amendment 
is intended to basically naturalize and establish as citizens with rights to due process to Mm -hmm. undo um, a Supreme Court case from 1857 called the Dred Scott decision. Um, I'm not familiar with that. Okay, so in um, the 1840s, I want to say it was like 1846, Dred Scott was a Missouri slave, and he was enslaved to a traveling physician. And so he and his family followed, he had a wife, Harriet, um, and they had kids, and they followed this physician as he traveled around. The physician left Missouri and went into Wisconsin, which is a free state, free territory. And um, then the physician died. The physician left him and his family to other family members in his will. But... Ew. Right? Isn't that messed up? Um, but He's he argues, yeah. I'm in Wisconsin. I'm, in, I'm a free man. My family's free. My wife is free. And so he and his wife, Harriet, sue for their freedom. And I emphasize Harriet because this history goes down as the Dred Scott case. Yep. She was also a plaintiff on this case. <laughs> it's Dred and Harriet Scott. Yeah. It's the Dred and Harriet Scott case. <laughs> Her name's there. It, it existed. She was real and also sued. Lived and, a life. <laughs> um, so it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And um, the Supreme Court is run by a massive racist named Tanny. And he basically, and, and the court, 7-2 to decision, um, he wrote the majority opinion and basically said that I'm not going to make a decision on this case because black people aren't people and can't sue. <gasps> so he doesn't even weigh in on the whole, like, if what it's right or wrong. If you cross the border it's great. and blah, Just blah, blah. Just be on the Supreme Court when you have opinions like that. Yeah. So that was the decision. That was the law of the land. So basically, and, and so it's one thing to do that to enslaved black people. But think about all the free black people in the country now who yeah. have been told you can't sue in court, right? And at that point, there had been many black people like who had sued for their freedom and yeah. won. And so so the Dred Scott case, Dred and Harriet Scott case, sort of made it so that black people were not citizens. They had no rights to due process. They didn't have any instinct. And yeah. the 14th Amendment brings all of that back. back. It says, okay, these people are naturalized citizens. citizens. Yeah. They were born here. They are citizens, and they have rights to due process. They can sue in court. Um, so... This is all, you know, f- to put on my, like, racist hat, this is, oh, there's, like, there's, like, these, uh, I don't, I'm not going to intentionally be racist, but the there are these uppity black people going around thinking they have rights. Oh, okay. And it it's creating this huge social shift that white racists in the South are not ready to take. Yeah. And then, of course, keep in mind that black women on plantations prior to emancipation, 
they were the property of their masters. They were sex slaves. Yeah. Or could be, at least. And um, we've got lots of primary source accounts. Harriet Jacob, for example, um, account, like, taught, wrote about her experience where her white master came after her. Frederick Douglass, is, Frederick Douglass was the son of his mom and his white master. Right. Um, so, you know, this was, this was very common. It was written into law that the children of black women would were become property. slaves. So it was incent they were, you know, masters were incentivized to rape their women. And so what's really hard is that for decades, centuries really, black women did not have rights to their body. Their body belonged to whatever white man wanted it. Oh, so gross. And that does not go away just because the federal government signs some laws somewhere. This culture of, oh yeah, I can just go hook up with that lady over there. So um, in her book, Gail Collins talks about this. She says on page 206, part of the Klan's strategy for terrorizing the black population was sexual assault. In Georgia, Rhonda Ann Childs was taken from her home and beaten by eight white men. Quote, two men stood upon my breast while two others took hold of my feet and stretched my limbs as far apart as they could, while the man standing upon my breast applied the straps to my private parts until fatigued fatigued into stopping and I was more dead than alive, she said. An ex-soldier then raped her, and although the South was obsessed with the idea of black men molesting white women, the real peril was for black women at the mercy of white men. It is all on the other foot. Colored women have a great deal more to fear from white men, acknowledged Z.B. Hardgrave, a white attorney. The Georgia legislator passed the Apprentice Act. This is probably one of the the laws that Mm -hmm. you encounter in in HR. Allowing employers to get custody of black orphans, allegedly so that they could teach them a trade. But it was actually a way for whites to get free labor. The American Missionary Association, which sent orphans to white households looking for domestic help, shift shipped off not only all the homeless black children that they could, that could be found, but also a number who had families eager to take care of them. Quote, somehow these black people have the faculty of finding out where their children are, complained the matron of an orphanage, which children were recruited after a few relatives had managed to retrieve nephews and nieces from the association's clutches. I mean, don't even get me started on the orphanages in, the, in America oh my gosh. after the Civil War. It's a whole other tale to tell, which would be probably an interesting episode to cover. But it is incredible what some of those kids went through. Yeah. There's also this culture in the South where, you know, a enslaved person accused of a crime could mm-hmm. be executed right there. Right? Yeah. Punishment Didn't could have be to have out. any justice. No. And so um, that sort of behavior continues without... You know, then I, you know, in my class, we debate whether during Reconstruction, black people were actually free. And it's, it's one of those really good nuanced debates to get into with kids because by every federal law, black people were free. Right. But by every social construct. Right. You're free, but you're only free if people are enforcing it. Right. Yeah, that's an, that's an ideal. It's, right. Yeah. So here's another situation. In South Carolina, an ex-slave named Sue was beaten and shot to death. 
when she exposed her former owner's attempt to apprentice her nephew. Ugh. Right? And so what's, what are going to be the repercussions of that, and why does he think that he can get away with doing that to her? Ugh. It's horrible. People were upset because they saw these black people um, proud and independent. And, yeah, you know, God forbid they actually take pride in their lives of freedom. Right. And this is, I think, why, you know, a century later we see this black power movement emerge because it's sort of like... Enough. Enough. We need to be proud of who we are, proud of our skin, proud of our hair, proud of everything. And... Um, you know, for for black people who had had their clothing sort of given to them, and it was typically like two, you know, very basic outfits a year, um, to be able to buy your own clothes, they started buying, you know, clothes that were like eccentric and exciting mm-hmm. because they can for the first time yeah, in their express life. culture and it, express their feelings and their who own. they are and their personality, um, and this was a source of pride. And Gail Collins talks a lot about how husbands were proud to buy their wives these fancy dresses. Mm-hmm. Black women, in particular, start really wanting to have you know, the, the dignified life of being a wife. Right. Black women had not been given that luxury. No they one, like, were... set up a home and have the, at this time, what it meant, you know. Yeah. Taking pride in all of the things that meant to be a mother and a wife. And almost, you know, in white society, you know, when a woman became a wife, she, that, she didn't work, she didn't labor outside the home unless they were poor, right? Right. And so that was, you know, that was what black women wanted to, to have. Um, and so there, this sort of creates tension because people in the South, white people in the South are used to the consistent labor of black women outside of the home. Right. Right. In fields, in, in jobs, um, and, and in domestic work. And, um, now white women have to go to work. (laughs) Now somebody's got to go to work. So white women called this, um, Acting the lady and, quote, the evil of female loaferism. Um, And so these are women that, black women who wanted their husband to, quote, support their idleness. Um, And they saw this as a threat to the agricultural economy. I love it. And they're they're such hypocrites. Right. (laughs) So hypocritical. We don't have to work, but you do. Right. Exactly. Oh, um, it's so gross. Yeah, and it, it's like a threat to this like racial superiority or whatever. <laughs> so, okay, it is in this context and in this environment that white women come down. And white women um, come to the South to help educate black people, black children, but black adults. And think about how hard it is to like learn a second language or something like that. And granted, these people speak English, Um but it, you know, you really understand, like, when you see a word written and you can For the read first it, time when you're in your 30s or 40s? Yeah. Forget it. Forget, that'd be so hard <laughs> it's to like do. like trying to learn Spanish. Yeah. So the Virginia Historical Society explained in, in an article that I found online that during this period, the Federal Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, which was commonly called the Freedmen's Bureau, um, 
quote, used its authority over former Confederate properties to provide buildings for black schools. And they didn't, this was a pretty underfunded department in Mm -hmm. the federal government. And so they really relied a lot on missionary associations. So like Christians, a lot of Quaker groups who had been pretty pro-abolition, fundraised a lot to provide for these schools. Um, And so mostly white female teachers from the North are sponsored by these groups in in the North to come down into this environment. Um, So I have here a diary entry from Mary Ames. She's from Boston. And in 1865, she went to South Carolina to teach slaves, former slaves, how to read and write. And she said, the school was in a building once used as a billiard room, which accommodated a large number of pupils. We often had 120, and when word went forth that supplies had come, the number increased. Indeed, it was so crowded that we told the men and women they must stay away to leave space for the children, as we considered teaching them more important. When we made out the school report to send to Boston, we were surprised that out of the hundred, only three children knew their age, nor had the slightest idea of it. One large boy told me he was three months old. The next day, many of them brought pieces of wood or bits of paper with straight marks made on them to show how many years they had lived. One boy brought a family record written in a small book. In January, smallpox broke out among the soldiers quartered in our place. Many of our scholars took it, and we closed the school for five weeks. We escaped, although in continual danger, for the Negroes, even when repulsively sick, were so eager for our gifts of clothing that they forced their way to our very bedrooms, and our carry-all, drawn by men, was used to carry the patients to the improvised hospital." When on Monday, February 26th, we began school again, we had 13 pupils. One of them, when asked if there was smallpox at her plantation, answered, no, the last one died Saturday. Oh, so sad. On the third day, 100 children had come back. Wow. Can you imagine teaching 100 children? No. It's wild. It's wild. I mean, I'm sure the faculty listening probably can't. Oh, my gosh. But... That's... But it shows how eager black people are to be educated. And oh my they, gosh, they absolutely. This. I mean, it's also like, think about that. For for decades having been denied... Denied education and reading and saying oh. it's against the law for you to even learn. Yeah. And so education, reading, writing is freedom to these people. But also the human brain is curious. Yes. And it is, you know, it's thirsty for knowledge. It's thirsty for more and more and more and can you imagine for decades, all you're told is this box, do these things, yeah. and you're going to be beaten otherwise. Right. You know, think about all that you have to overcome to even want to learn at that yeah. point, too. It's like, yeah. you're so thirsty for it, but it's like, can I can I endure this? Yeah. So this is a very difficult job because not only are you educating more people than you know we talk about small classroom sizes today right so you're you're educating too many people at a time but then also think about the trauma that every single one of these pupils would have been through and you know it is not really until the last few years that we've started to talk about trauma-informed classrooms so this is in an era prior to that where you know they still like beat your knuckles in school and and so it's a very different time period um 
Well, then you think about basic needs being met. Yeah. Have they been fed? Do they have enough clothing? Has is their family surviving? They just went through a seriously additional traumatic experience of smallpox. Right. And this is an underfunded service that's being provided. So it probably wouldn't shock you that most of the white people who came down didn't stay very long. Oh, I'm so surprised. Right? Didn't like the, didn't like the surroundings? A, this would be a very hard job to do, although an incredibly needed job. Mm. And so it's interesting that then, as now, they are continuing, they, they wanted to push, and we continue to push for more black people in education. And, um, and especially black men today, we talk a lot about that. Um, there's a great article that I'm going to put up on our website um, to, and just make this available to people. It's by Kay Ann Taylor, and she wrote a great scholarly article that I found on JSTOR about two black women who became educators during this time. And um, there were a lot of black people who maybe were free prior to emancipation, yep. who already knew how to read and write in some way. And so a lot of black people stepped up as educators to to support their, you know, their people. Um, and these two women, um, you know, just did an, a great, a lot. And their stories are really um worth telling. And so I think this article would be a really powerful thing. Um, but it's important to just understand that there are black women and black men that are stepping up to educate yeah. in, in this time. And, um, and so that, that article will be available to everybody on our website. Awesome. So I have a lot of lesson plans and there are a lot of lesson plans available on reconstruction. Okay. So one of the things that I've done is there are those sort of traditional questions that should be asked, which is, are black people free during this time period? Yeah. And so I've kept, um, the Stanford history education groups, um, information lesson plan that they already have and I've just added sources that have women's voices in them and then alternatively I think a really interesting question that Sojourner Truth posed <laughs> during mm. this time is okay so there's a lot of talk going on at this time about black men getting their rights and white women getting theirs <laughs> but yeah. what about black women right yeah and um and ain't I a woman shouldn't I be included and so let's ask that question aren't they women and shouldn't they have you know equal rights to yeah. stay home as moms if they want to and equal opportunities to like you know, not be raped and those types of things. All the things. Yeah. So, um, so separately, I think investigating the condition of black women separate from like men. So important to bring that narrative into the classroom. Right. And Sojourner Truth goes so far as to say, okay, if black men get their rights, then women are still slaves. Powerful. It's heavy. Yeah. And I think kids need to read that and really think about what that means. If Yeah, they need to sit with that for a minute. Yeah. That's tough. So. Kelsey, incredible. Thanks, Brooke. Yeah, thank you. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.